Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So today we're going to continue our series called Staying Engaged. How do we stay engaged in our relationships, particularly marriage, when it's difficult over the long haul? We're talking about this from the perspective of marriage, although it could apply to any relationship that you're in, because all of us want to be part of close relationships. As part of last week, uh, just a small part of last week, we talked about vows, and we kind of made a little bit of fun of what if the vows were realistically more of what life is really like on our wedding day, and had a little bit of fun with that. Today, we're going to talk about vows a little bit more seriously, but we're going to start again with some fun. Enjoy this clip from a comedian named Bob Smiley. The only bad part about the ceremony was uh, we agreed that we were going to write our own vows. Anybody do that? Anybody write their own vows? Anybody here? Did you remember to uh, write them before the ceremony? I did not. And in my defense, I did not have time. I was busy trying to find the church. And all of a sudden, I was just standing there. And all of a sudden, the, the preacher goes, uh, and the lovely couples decided to say their own vows. And I totally... Just blew it because I was like, oh! <laughs> Everybody looked at me and I was like, oh! Yeah! <laughs> Finally, after all that preparation, <laughs> ladies first. <laughs> and, oh, she went, it was beautiful. She, she had uh, scripture. She uh, quoted uh, songs and, and, and proverbs and all that. I mean, it was just, uh, it was the most amazing. I wish I still had it on tape, but you know, obviously when they air a Seinfeld marathon, you grab the first tape you can find. <laughs> but oh, it was great. It was great. And then there was the moment where she just stopped and then everybody was looking at me. And I, you know, again, I, I came here, you know, like, I, I want to make you laugh. I'm not trying to get like all, but there was this moment where I knew that she was the one for me because I had nothing. And I looked into her eyes and that's when I knew I could fake this. I could totally fake this. Because <laughs> I'd listen to songs. I'd watch movies. I was like, honey, what can I say? But you complete me. You had me at hello. You're the wind beneath my wings. I feel like I could show you the world. <laughs> Shining, shimmering, splendid. I know friends are friends forever. But I prefer butterfly kisses and flowers in your hair. I swear. I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. I'll be there. I'll be there for you. These five words I swear to you. Because when a man loves a woman, he can't keep his mind on nothing else but the good thing he's found. So near and far, wherever you are, wild thing, I think I love you. Oh, I love that clip. But it's a little bit too close to home. Wendy and I both wrote our vows for our wedding, and she was not quite as late as Bob Smiley in writing hers, but almost. 
She stayed up the entire night before our wedding with her brother and in the wee hours of the morning, barely able to stay awake, wrote her vows. And then she gave them to my dad, who was a minister doing the, doing the ceremony, and he, he assumed she had them memorized, so he hid them in the back of his Bible. So we come to the vow section of the ceremony, and he has to go on a fishing expedition to find the vows. It was quite entertaining in front of 400 people in a non-air-conditioned, hot, oldest Swedish Lutheran church in... Uh, Minnesota. But it was a great day. It was a fun day. Vows. Aren't they the things that make us nervous? I mean, what couple isn't nervous about vows going into their wedding day? And and there's actually this argument uh, increasing. It's still small, but it's an increasing argument in our culture today going on. I don't need vows. I don't need a piece of paper to show my commitment, my love to another person. And yeah, well, theoretically, yeah, that's that's possible, I suppose, but theory and reality often don't meet. I think the reality is most of the time when somebody says that, they're saying to you, I don't love you enough to close off my options right now, but I really want the treats of marriage, so can we just not have you know, the commitment and the love that we need? It reminds me actually of a woman, Lynn, who uh, I've heard this, we've heard this throughout our lifetime, Wendy and I, many times. In fact, Wendy's going to come up and help me with the message here and finish the message in a moment, so... We'll get to welcome her voice into this as well. But Lynn is this person who, like many, was seriously sexually involved in a relationship with a man prior to marriage. And then later on, she met her husband, and she found herself, from that experience prior to marriage, being left with the feeling that any time there was conflict, that the relationship was going to implode, they were going to go away, they were going to leave her. And then when she got into marriage, it still ended up being there. It got worse. See, and, and that's actually what I hear on a regular basis from when I talk to people who have lived together or had sexual interaction before marriage. They start talking about the fact that, man, you know, we were physically and, and, and emotionally about as vulnerable as you can be without the commitment, and it fosters an unknown insecurity in my life. And I really struggle with that insecurity. Research from the University of Virginia's Marriage Project actually identifies a strong correlation between relational and sexual happiness in our life and our vows and our commitments, and not only the vows, but even, interestingly enough, how we take those vows. It, uh, one of the conclusions that came, it, says it, it showed a, a strong differential between uh, marital happiness between those who cohabitated before marriage and those who waited for marriage to cohabitate. There was a large percentage increase in happiness for those who chose to wait till marriage. And uh, interesting enough, this is the, the funny one to me. Uh, the larger your wedding, the, more, the larger the audience at your wedding, the higher the correlation and the likelihood that you were happy in your marriage long-term. Interesting, isn't it? I kind of asked why. And so I actually went and read more detail from the co-author, Scott Stanley, as to what he felt like they found from those findings. And this is what he said. He says, based on the findings of the research, we believe that one important obstacle in marital happiness is that many people now, and this is his term, slide through major relationship transitions, like having sex, like moving in together, like getting engaged or having a child. He goes on to say, another way to think about sliding versus deciding is in terms of rituals. We tend to ritualize experiences that are important. At times of important transitions, the process of making a decision sets up a couple to make stronger commitments with better follow-through as they live them out. 
What he's saying there is basically vows, signing that piece of paper really is a vital part of love and happiness. It's not just a piece of paper. It's not just some words. What he's saying is a a truth that actually the Bible talks about, externalizing points of commitment in tangible ways in our lives is an important part of love, an important part of faith. The Bible talks about it in regard to faith, specifically in James, it says this. It says, faith without works, faith without tangible expression is dead. And so even the Bible tells us we do things like public baptism as an externalized public way of declaring a commitment. We do wedding ceremonies. We do child dedication as a way of dedicating children and the parents to the parenting process. And we do other things. We love without tangible, formal decisions and commitments, especially in major life transitions, is at best a very shallow form of love. But let's think further about vows and the wedding. What, when, when we take a vows at the wedding, what do they mean? Well, they mean, I think, at least two things. Uh, First, every wedding I've ever started, and and this is a common practice for most people in leading weddings, you start with something called the challenge to sacred vows that goes something like this. The vows you are about to take today are more than mere words given to one another. They are commitments made before God to the other and to God. They are sacred and though you may not have thought, thought it through like this, the reality is even the way the entire wedding ceremony is constructed is built around the idea that our vows are given to God, not just our partner. For example, why, why do you think it is in history and in tradition that the pastor leading the ceremony asks you questions to which you answer, I do and I will? Well, that practice actually originated from the idea that the pastor is the representative of God and therefore the final pronouncement even of man and wife. I pronounce you what? Man and wife by the authority of the state and by the authority of God. I pronounce you man and wife, right? It's See, the pastor is set up and even in the tradition was set up to be the voice of God, the intermediary for God. You are taking your vows and you are making them not just to each other but to God. Vows and covenant in the Bible typically go together in a lot of the thinking. Our core passage in Ephesians actually talks about covenant and commitment, and, and, it, and it says this. It says, in quoting Genesis 32, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, or cleave is the common word we remember there uh, in older translations, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This leave and cleave is covenantal language. It's not just a contract. It's not just an agreement we make. And we we really have a little bit of a hard time understanding covenant because most of our relationships, business or otherwise, are consumer-based agreements, consumer-based relationships and not covenant. For For example, our business contracts. Our business contracts are always something that has a time limit to them or an out for the other party, and it and it's always very, very mutually self-fulfilling terms. There's nothing sacrificial on anyone's part in this relationship. And sometimes we translate the consumer relationship a lot of times to our personal relationships as well, don't we? As long as the cost-benefit of that relationship is positive, we continue in the relationship. I mean, think about it. How many friends have we left 
or distance ourselves from? How many churches or organizations or neighborhoods or even family members have we distanced ourselves from when things, the cost of it became too high? Not in a consumer world, we're driven by the needs of the individual being more important than the greater good. Now, don't get me wrong. There are godly times to leave relationships, whether it's marriage or a friendship or a work relationship or anything. There's godly times to leave those things. But the point that I'm trying to make today is the consumer mentality that we so easily fall into causes us, generally speaking, to leave way too soon. And we miss the benefit that God wants to bring to us in that setting and to others way too easily. Covenant is also how God has chosen to express his commitment to us. He, commuted, he, he expresses it all throughout the Old Testament, but the, obviously the biggest one is Jesus coming and sacrificially pursuing us, dying for us, to forgive us, to pursue us, to empower us, and to promise a good future for us. A covenant is a sacrificial commitment to the good of another, regardless of the cost to you as an individual, even if it means your very life itself. We see that obviously in Jesus. The Bible itself is a covenant document. And yet, we're not completely unfamiliar to it because we do naturally in our own world practice covenant. Even a lot of commercial writers get that and enjoy this little 15 second spot that illustrates it. Dave, I'm sorry to interrupt. I gotta take a sick day tomorrow. Dads don't take sick days. Dads take NyQuil. The nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching fever. Best sleep with a cold medicine. All right, how many of you needed that last night to sleep? Probably a bunch of you. That is a picture of covenant. It's a kind of relationship that is binding, that is sacrificial. Whether you feel like it or not, it's a forever commitment of love in a relationship. And to not fulfill that relationship is frowned on by, by society. In fact, in this instance, it may even land you in jail if you forsake that commitment, right? Whereas last week we talked about uh, an invitation of you to commit to looking first at your self-centeredness and not looking first like we are tend, to, tend to do in our marriages at the woundedness. Instead, to look at ourselves and invite God into that place to heal us so then we can actually love instead of getting focused in woundedness. Today, I want to add to that a second commitment. And it's, it's almost cliche to say it. And that second commitment is this, making God the center of your relationship. Yeah, that's cliche, isn't it? We hear that all the time. What does that mean? How does that work itself out? Well, the second point about vows, I think, helps us begin to bridge that to something practical. In today's world, as we talked about last week, too much of the definition of love is about feeling, is about chemistry, is about how a marriage fulfills me and my dreams and my needs and how it meets my needs. But that's, that's such a small view of love focused on the current moment of life. But if you really look at vows, what are they? Vows that we take at our wedding are not statements of current love, are they? But they're commitments to future love. They're not statements of feeling, but they're statements of commitment to action. You see, even if we write our own vows, they all generally sound in the same tone as the traditional vows, which I've done so few weddings that use the traditional vows, I have to read them to you because I don't have them memorized. I take you to be my what? Wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward 
future, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others to love and cherish you forever till death do us part. All of our vows say something like this. From this day forward, in worse, in poor, in sickness, in difficulty, in arguments, in depression, in stress, to not, we will not often feel the chemistry but the vows are love's commitment to how we choose to act in the future. See, vows are like old monuments. In the song that we sang right before I came up, we used the word Ebenezer. And everybody, get, I get, I'd forgotten what that word meant. And I had to ask Dusty again over Christmas time because we started singing it. Ebenezer is one of those old terms that refers actually back to a practice the Israelites did in the Old Testament. Every time there was a, an interaction with God where a covenant and vows were made and commitment was made, they erected the stone monument. That's what an Ebenezer is, these stone monuments remembering our commitments made to God. You see, vows are the fuel of love when the feelings are waning and oxygen is needed to replenish and reinvigorate the muscles that are tired and maybe even bruised from actively loving our spouse. But even in that thought, the fact that vows are a future promise of action involves God because we have no control over our future. The only one who has control over our future can walk us into that as God. I mean, when we marry someone, we have no idea what the future holds. You don't know how long your spouse is going to live, whether they're going to live long or live short. or You don't know whether they're going to be healthy or sick, whether they're going to be active or they're going to be encumbered by back issues or knee problems that completely change the health and the way you, get, the way you relate and how life goes on. You don't know whether you're going to be rich or, or, or the economy is going to crash or something bad's going to happen. You're going to lose it all. You don't know, you don't know whether your spouse is going to be mentally strong later in life. Maybe they're going to have a stroke. Maybe something else is going to happen. They're going to lose their mental capacity. You know none of that. You don't know how your spouse is going to respond to the difficulty of life. You don't know whether that's going to make them stronger and softer or if it's going to make them harder and more distant. And when faith in our life is severely untested, you don't know whether your spouse is going to be faithful or lose heart. You may think you know, but we really don't know. God is the only one in whom you can trust for your future. And the Bible talks about that on a regular basis. He's the only one, one that's constant. We can see it in the Bible and history. It says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no one else so constant. And another place he says in Jeremiah, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And interestingly enough, God is saying this to his people at a time when the, the pain of sin is catching up to them and they feel hopeless. See, the only one capable of leading you into the dream you have for anything, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, or whether it's a meaningful life, is God. And the problem is, especially in our marriages, we are so easily unconsciously deceived into trusting in our spouses to meet our needs, both for today and for tomorrow. And why is that? It's because we all, we all start marriage with a dream, and we should. We all start marriage with this dream and this picture of what it's going to be like. I mean, for women, the picture is usually something around the idea. Uh, this is a big generality. I understand that. But for women, it's usually around being treasured and valued and tenderly loved and listened to and somebody who will make me feel secure and safe in their arms. And for men... 
It's free legal sex as much as you want and somebody who adores me and laughs at my jokes and thinks I'm really funny and great. And both are passionately unrealistic, aren't they? I mean, stereotypes are dangerous, right? They're not always true, but sometimes stereotypes emerge from things that are generally true and are helpful to talk about distinctives. And Ephesians 5.33 actually is one of those stereotypes that I think is true and helpful to talk about. It reads this. It says, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, if you remember from last week reading the earlier text, or go back earlier, later, later today and read it, you'll notice that earlier in this text, there's this picture of this husband who is deferring their own interests, who is listening, who is attending tenderly to the wife's needs. There's, there's the word pictures of treasuring her beauty in spite of the blemishes, believing the best, and, and believing that that best can come out so that one day she will be truly radiant and spotless and without wrinkle as we believe believe she is now. And it's this beautiful picture of tenderly loving. And I think another way to put it is it's a beautiful picture of a kind of love that creates great security, able to be open, able to be vulnerable, able to be loved and known, right? And I think Paul is right that the first priority, at least for many women in marriage, especially in their heart, is more than sex, more than accomplishment, more than being valued for what you do, most women want someone who's going to listen and tenderly care about them all throughout their life and provide that sense of security and the safe place to be vulnerable. Okay? So kind of in the ballpark there maybe for, for many, not maybe not all. Paul goes on and talks to women about how they can love men and he leans on the word respect and I think he's right on in getting at the first priority need of most men is this desire to be respected, that I am valuable, that I provide some significance, that I am um, worthwhile in this relationship. It's more important than tenderness, oftentimes more important than that sense of security. Men need to feel respected and significantly valuable. Now, here's the deal. While I think that these Stereotypes as a priority way of how our needs sometimes express, not the only way. And sometimes the best way to love among the genders is in the ballpark. In a greater sense, what Paul is doing for us here is identifying the two primary needs we all have. We all have two primary needs of security and significance in our life. And the interesting thing, and we dealt with this in two series over the last year on Ephesians, so some of you who were there for that will remember, but the interesting thing is the entire letter of Ephesians up to this point, Paul is actually spending his entire time addressing those two needs. He's talking to us constantly about the great price Christ paid for us and how he meets our needs for security because he has adopted us. Even when we shouldn't have been adoptable because we weren't lovable, he's adopted us as his sons and daughters and he guarantees an inheritance for us. He guarantees a beautiful future for us. He treats us as his own and he's giving this amazing picture of this love that is full of security. And and he also goes on promising the significance through the fact that he, the king of the universe, the creator of all that, that exists, the guy who has all the power and authority in the world, that powerful God has plans to walk you, good plans, to walk you and I into meaningful good works, significant life impact. But the problem is, 
We often go into marriage, and instead of looking to God for those needs to be met, we look for our spouse to meet those needs of significance and security, and it often ends up in huge conflict and disengagement. And Wendy's going to join me now. Welcome her. And Hey, thank you. Good morning. I'm um, taking away the thing because she doesn't want it, not because I'm trying to take away the thing. Oh, yeah, wait. Um, John Gottman is the nation's foremost researcher on marriages and families, and he has shared that for over 40 years where he has studied and worked with thousands of couples, the number one most important issue that came up was trust and betrayal. He goes on to share that, I started to see their conflicts, and it was like a fan that was opening up, and in every region of that fan was another area of trust issues. Can I trust you when you'll be there? Can I trust that you're going to be there and listen to me when I'm upset? Can I trust you to choose me over your mother and over your friends? Can I trust that you trust you to work for our family, to not take drugs? Can I trust you to not cheat on me and be sexually faithful? Can I trust you to respect me, to help with the things in the house, to really be involved with our children? And so these questions of trust all tie into those desires for security and significance. Next week, we're going to talk more about communication and how to deal with conflict um, and build trust in those ways. But today, we're going to focus a little bit more on how important trust is, the commitment that we give to help meet the needs of our spouse. So how do, the, how do you meet the needs of your spouse? How do you get your needs met in your marriage or in your relationships? I mean, Rasha shared, we know that the Bible says God is the one who meets our needs Boy, in my experience in working in with marriages, that's just not so easy to walk out. And a lot of times that ties into our unrealistic expectations that we have for our spouse. Now, the older I get, um, I don't think I'm getting more cynical, but when I watch movies like, you know, the comedian talked about, like, you know, um, you complete me, hello, you know, or, you know, those kind of things, I just more look at like, oh, that's young love and they're just a little clueless. Except when it comes to Mr. Darcy, because Mr. Darcy is Mr. Darcy. Yes, yeah. Um, I have to watch that because if I stay in a place like that, I can have some. It can pull into some unrealistic expectations that I might have for Ross. So I don't. I don't fully buy into though. Um, Aeneas Nin. She wrote um, that fairy tales poison us, and I think there's an element to that. But I love fairy tales. I love happy endings. So if it's God that created romance, and he created love, and he created marriage, what kind of stories or examples does he give for us to follow? Um, I remember when my oldest was in his early teens, and I went to go check on him before bed, and he was reading out of the book of Hosea. So I was like, seriously? You know, this is one of those books that I would have pulled out. It's not rated PG. So I would have pulled it out for a later time for him. But he was asking questions like, why would God have... You know, him pursue a woman who was so unfaithful, who consistently rejected him. And I was like, gosh, you know, because that is not the kind of love that I would ever want for my son. I have watched my friends have to deal with navigating the pain of when their child's spouse has been unfaithful to them. And I have no idea what this mama bear would do if somebody messed with my kid. So, um, but I really wish I would have gone more into, um, understanding and explaining to him that Hosea is a powerful love story. I mean, God led Hosea to seek his wife even when she willfully deserted him time and time again and was unfaithful. Um, Even when she was at her darkest moment after being gone for some time, she was going to be sold to the man who could give the highest bid. 
But Hosea found her and he bought her back. I mean, he, Hosea is an amazing example of the persevering love of God. And we could spend the rest of our lives just marinating in that truth that no matter how faithless we are, we have a God who will pursue us time and time again. And so he gives us a great foundation that we know that God is the one who wants to meet our needs. And, but how do we picture that in our everyday life? So at the risk of sounding a little bit redneck, um, there is an analogy that was helpful to me that described what it's like when you have two people that are in a relationship that keep trying to get each other to meet your needs. It's described as two dogs, no, two ticks without a dog. Okay, so what it is is that there's two ticks trying to get from the other tick to fill them up, right? It's like two very flawed people trying to get each other's needs met from each other when there's no way that that's going to work. But then it's sort of a disgusting analogy because that means we're ticks and then God is a dog, right? And I don't know, I lived on a farm and my dogs had very disgusting ticks on them, so it's just gross. But if you can get that picture in your brain, when we try to meet our needs by just getting it from the other person, two ticks, no dog, will never work, right? So how, how do you guys feel safe, secure, and valuable in your relationships? You know, it's really easy to base it on your performance of what you do in other areas or the ability that your spouse has to make you feel feel this way. But the approach that that has is like a roller coaster because it always depends upon our performance or upon how well our spouse can be at loving us. You know, as Christians, again, we have something so much more sure than that, but it's just not so simple. Um, one of the most significant authors and speakers that has been in my life that I've listened to for over 20 years is a man named Graham Cook. Uh, he introduced me to a more personal, loving God in the Bible. He has a favorite saying, God is the kindest person I have ever known. And until recently, Graham had never shared much about his upbringing, but now as he's shared more, it makes his experience of God even that much more powerful. He was born into a, a generation of a crime family. Um, for some reason, out of all of his siblings, his father had picked him out as the child that he was going to despise. So Graham was not allowed to speak other than no, yes, and thank you. He has spent most of his time having to be upstairs alone in a room and away from the family. On his birthdays his, and Christmas, his father would say, I've got you a gift, just like he would give to his other siblings. But then, as Graham's anticipation would rise, um, his father would, on his birthday or Christmas, bring him out to the backyard, take out the present, and then smash it or burn it. You know, he experienced harsh rejection on a, for how, throughout his childhood. And at 19, though, Graham had a personal encounter with God, and it changed him forever. Um, he did. He got married. He had three kids, and he was involved in ministry. Um, he would always talk about his wife very positively and lovingly, but so it gave you no clue to what he was really experiencing in his own marriage. Um, his wife, for years of their marriage, just never wanted to be married. She distanced herself and was pretty disengaged. So finally, after years, she um, divorced him and said it was nothing about Graham, per se. It was just that she had her own issues. She just wanted to be alone. So here is a man who had never experienced love from his own biological father and was, again, re-experiencing that pain in his own marriage. And although Graham didn't talk about the marriage or divorce, he recently made a comment that he, from over a decade, he learned to love somebody who never returned that love made him much better. 
And I'm like, wow, you know, here, what a story about God who um, can turn someone's life around. He is a man who was consistently rejected, yet his life tells about God's love to people all over the world. It makes me think, like, how do I love someone who doesn't love me back in the way that I like? How did Hosea do it? How does God do it? Now, when we say that God meets our needs, we're not saying, like, we don't need other people. I mean, God definitely created us for relationship, and it hurts, and it can hurt a lot when our spouse doesn't give us attention or support or respect or value or affirmation. And God wants us to have those longings touched, but he wants us to learn how to direct them to a deeper place that he can meet. So let's say a man comes home from work, and he he receives a cold shoulder from his wife. You know, he feels irritated because she criticizes him over everything that he does. Like, he can't even put dishes in the dishwasher correctly. So he's just ticked. He's irked. He's like, gosh, you know, he has needs. He wants to feel valued. He wants to be treasured in his own home. So his focus becomes what? What is her flipping problem? I mean, like, why can't she change? And that is totally understandable because, yet, if he focuses all of his attention on getting her to change, what's going to be happening? You know, how in control is he of getting her to change? You know, and if, you know, he can try to listen to her and understand where she's coming from. But the big thing is, like, what is he going to do with these thoughts and thoughts and feelings of anger or disappointment in his relationship? You can't ignore them. I mean, that can only work for a certain amount of time. And we don't want to go and disengage from our partner and say, well, I'm not going to get my needs met up all by you. I'm going to go pull into my career or I'm going to go pull into my kids to make them feel more fulfilled. How do we pull into God to meet our needs so that we can stay engaged in our relationships? So here's just a few steps that summarize a little bit what we've already talked about. And the first step would be no surprise, um, but I don't know about you. It's hard for me to want to pray or talk to God when... I am sometimes in a painful situation that has lasted um, for a longer period of time. I would rather avoid it. I don't want to talk about it. I'd rather minimize it. But prayer really is so awesome. You know, in Psalms, we get to see how prayer, it begins with honesty. God, this is where I'm at, and I just really need you. Hebrews 4.15 talks about Jesus. He is our great priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and our difficulties. So I don't know why, but I just try to hide sometimes my thoughts and feelings from him. I don't know why. But it's important in prayer to acknowledge it hurts, the pain, and let him know. Like it might be, I feel like screaming. Right now I feel like running away and never, ever coming back. Um, I don't want to feel this way. I feel empty. I feel angry. I feel sad. But I want to thank you, God, that you love me even now. So the second step would be um, just to remember the truth of who really meets your needs for security and significance. Because you could say, I mean, I may really be rejected by my spouse and it hurts, but the truth is I am totally loved, I'm accepted, I am wanted by God. In Him I am secure. He thinks I am significant. Um, But for some, we can still use this saying, like, I just need God. And we put up these spiritual, thick, protective walls between us and our our spouse. Because I don't want to open up to them. I don't want to have to be kind to them when they haven't been kind back. But if we put up those protective walls, it's just going to stunt us. It's going to stunt the ability for healing to happen. 
I remember a time when I was sitting alone in my bedroom, being very hurt over um, how Ross and I had been getting along, and I was praying to God about, you know, where we were at, and mainly I was just telling God how horrible Ross was, <laughs> um, and I was, you know, listing all these various ways, and uh, I knew, I mean, we're both very, very flawed people, um, and I have hurt Ross really bad at times, and I'm, I grieve over those places, but in this time, Ross was really being difficult. And um, so I, when I was talking to God about it, and uh, I was talking, and I just kept sensing this phrase, like, he is not your savior. And I remember thinking, like, um, I think I've already fully enumerated all the reasons why he wouldn't ever be in savior status. Because right now, I mean, I really, it's not that way. And so, but I remember just sitting with that a little bit longer and thinking, like, really, what were my expectations of Ross and how much I was pulling on him. You know, I've talked before about anxiety has been an issue for me and feeling a safety and a security. Um, I was expecting and even demanding that Ross would meet my needs in ways that he was not designed to be because he's flawed, but also there's no way he could meet those holes for me. And so it was taking time to listen to the invitation that God had for me to move back into him and like how he wanted to meet those needs that I am wanted, I am secure and valued, and to get to a place of connecting with God in a way that Ross would never, ever be able to meet. So that third step comes when we, have, when we connect with God with both our head and our heart, and it leads us to be able to, out of the grace that we have received from him, that we can care for our spouse's needs even when they don't meet ours. Now there is a side note here because tending to our spouse's needs does not require us to be a doormat. There are healthy boundaries to have. There's a great book by Cloud and Townsend called you know, Boundaries in Marriage. But right now, as we look at our commitment and ourselves and our relationship, you know, what really is our goal in our marriage? Is our goal really just to get our spouse to meet our needs? Or are we really wanting to learn how to receive from God and then out of that fullness give to our spouse. So here's the point that I hope that all we, we can all get. Even the most accepting and loving spouse cannot meet our needs for security and significance. Nobody can. <clears throat> because we all sin. We just don't have that kind of power. We cannot add to the fact that our spouse is secure. But we can add to the, to the feelings of that security and significance. So what does that mean? Because it means that we are already feeling um, secure, we feel significant in Christ, but when we really get that, we're able to love our spouse in a way that reaffirms and accentuates the love that God already has. So I guess that was just so freeing for me to know that I can add to that, and Ross can add to that for me, but I cannot expect him to fill that place for me. So a final example. You know, Ross just talked about that woman named Lynn who, in the very beginning, and she was a woman that experienced rejection in a previous relationship so much so that now, every time they had an argument, she just felt like the marriage was over and that there was, he was going to leave. She had high levels of insecurity. Because her marriage had started off well, but as the years went on, the arguments became getting more and more tense, more yelling, more tension. Lynn was scared. She feared abandonment. And it caused her to pull away even before their marriage was even talking about divorce. She was pulling back. But then one night, in a moment of a lot of fear and confusion, her husband did something that changed Lynn and her marriage forever. He held her and he told her that he that if their issues never changed, if the tension still remained, that 
I am never going to quit on this marriage, and I'm never going to leave you. Wow. I mean, he demonstrated the kind of love that God gives to us. I mean, he was in it for the long haul. That's a covenant. That is um, definitely not a consumer relationship. So he was committed to hold on to his vows even when his feelings of love were not present. And it makes a very profound point because what is the purpose of marriage? Is the purpose of marriage to make us happy or is it to help us to become more like Christ and to be able to love others with more freedom? So how is God inviting you to connect with him in meeting your needs so that you're free to love others more easily? So right now, um, I would just like you to take this like 20 seconds. The Holy Spirit speaks to you. Um, just let him, just ask him, what are you wanting to focus on for me? God, we want to thank you so much that you provided and are in covenant relationship with us, that there is nothing that we could ever do that would make you leave us, that you are totally faithful and true. And I thank you, God, that you were with us for the long haul. And Lord, I pray over every person here that their relationships, their marriage and outside relationships, that they would experience um, the accentuation of your love. But I pray that every person would be able to get a stronger sense of who you are and how much you love them. I pray that no person here um, would feel discouraged, that there is no marriage, no relationship that you don't want to work on. And I pray that you would bless each person. We thank you so much for who you are. In the name of Jesus, amen. These next few songs are going to be a, a perfect opportunity for you if you felt like God touched an issue in your heart where you're looking for needs to be met wrongly in your spouse, where there's tension there. Allow Him to come into that place through these next few, song, few songs and bring stillness and bring His presence and fill you in that area so that you can be free to love because you love from a full position, not from a demanding, unreasonable expectations from your spouse. Join him. And that's so true. He is our one defense. He is our security. And he's the one who, in all the angst, all the hurt of needs not being met like you wish they were in your relationship, can be the one who stills your heart if you bring it to him. We're going to receive our offering now. Just go ahead and come, Lord. We're grateful for your presence here. I pray, Lord, especially right now, that you would be with uh, any who are feeling hopeless or very near hopeless. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest on them right now and break through and bring hope because you, Lord, are the one who gives us a future and a hope. Lord, make that real in this moment. Lord, thank you for your radical generosity to us to prove to us that we are secure we are significant in you that we have purpose and lord even now as we give lord thank you for your generosity to us in jesus name amen
thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.